All right, so we're talking about love today. What a huge topic. I mean, the Bible is full of things that we could talk about. So many veins to go down, so much information on love. And I have the pleasure to try to narrow that down to a good 20 minutes. So we're going to start off today in prayer and uh, come before the Lord and commit this time. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the freedom to learn your word. God, come and meet us here. Work through me. Help me to speak your words clearly. And Lord, I pray that your word will go forth um, through these words and sanctify us today. So Lord, just be with us. In your name I pray. Amen. I believe that Hallmark is the benchmark for secular love out in the world market today. Here are some of your favorite familiar quotes about love that we often hear on Valentine's Day. So, always and forever. (laughs) You make my life complete. Your love makes every day sparkle. You are my heart's epic adventure. My heart is wherever you are. And my all-time favorite, Be Mine Valentine. When we look at these heart sentiments about love in relation to God, in relation to the Word of God, as many say, or maybe just in Chatham they say, I'm not sure, they really are as dull as ditch water. From, yep, that's Chathamite right there. Yeah. From start to finish, the Bible is about God's love and his relationship with us. Tim Challies writes in his book, Visual Theology, that your love for God is limited by your knowledge of him. So you can really only love him as far as you know him. And so when we dig into God's word and see how he intended love to look like, we really are painted a different picture than what Hollywood or Hallmark has conjured up as secular love. When we study God himself and how he loves we know or we get to know God and to know God is and to know God is how we love him Um, to love God is to understand how to love others as well so what better way to know God than by going to the passage where he formally introduces himself to Moses way back in the old testament of exodus Many of you are familiar with the events of Moses, and we're going to fast forward past when God uses Moses to free his people from Egyptian slavery and zoom right into the covenant at the bottom of Mount Sinai. God leads his people to the foot of Mount Sinai, where he invites the people of Israel into a covenantal relationship. Moses had been teaching uh, the people about what God had commanded him to teach, the Ten Commandments, the Jewish law, and about the tabernacle, so that they could follow Jesus in full obedience and peace. As Moses is up on the mountain receiving the blueprints of the tabernacle, down below, the Israelites at the camp are losing patience. And so they make a beautiful golden calf idol to replace as the God who brought them out of Egypt. They break the first two commandments right in front of God's presence up on the mountain. God expresses his anger and pain to Moses, and Moses pleads for Israel's life. What about your covenant promise to Abraham? 
And what will the other nations think if you wipe out your people you just saved? So God accepts Moses' intercession, or in, intercession and changes his course of destruction. While he does bring judgment on those that instigated the adultery, he forgives the nation as a whole and renews his covenant with his people. God reintroduces himself to Moses all over again at this moment. It was at this point where God describes his own character to Moses. So we're going to look at Exodus 34, verse 6. So if you have your Bibles open, let's go to Exodus 34, verse 6. Part of it's written up here, but I'm going to read a little bit past that. So get those Bibles out. (laughs) I'll give you a little bit a minute. There you go. Got it? Exodus 34. So the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. So we're gonna just stop there. We are going to now break down this part because this is where God actually talks about his character and what he is all about. And so I've kind of put it up on the board. We're gonna actually take some of the words, extract some of the words out of the passage we are going to um, break it down so that we understand that what each attribute means. And we're going to also look at the opposite of each word and look at some examples of each antonym. Sometimes looking at the opposite of a word helps us really understand the fullness of its meaning. So we're going to start off with merciful. Number one. There's the teacher in me coming out, right? (laughs) Merciful means full of compassion, forgiveness, or withholding punishment. And so in contrast to that, merciless, to show no mercy or kindness or pity, to be unforgiving, to not show compassion. And there's so many of examples of how we see the contrast in society. Withholding forgiveness to a loved one because we really know that the silent treatment will help. Or maybe someone did something so wicked to you that there just isn't room for them in your life, so you have to cut them out of your circle completely. It just seems easier for you. Or a coworker who's just not making the job and looks to you for solace or advice, but you just don't want to give them a hand up. Maybe it is just simply withholding information that would extend forgiveness or compassion to someone. Or lastly, maybe you just can't stand someone, so you avoid them at all costs. This is not love. Colossians 2 verse, sorry, Colossians 3 verse 12 says, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. Let me repeat that. 
bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So you also must forgive. This is God's love. All right, our next one, number two, gracious. Oh, my pen. Gracious means to bend in kindness to an inferior, giving grace to someone who doesn't deserve it. It's a gift given without strings attached. Often it is added to, or it is attributed to the way that we inform others of their errors. So, usually in speech. Um, so the contrast to this would be rudeness, discourtesy, disrespect, impolite, aloof, being aloof, hateful. It can even go as far as being hateful. Some of these are very obvious, but some of them are not. A few examples would be if someone is being cold to another because they had a distaste for that person. Trying to show that you are superior to someone, maybe through intelligence, through rank, maybe through biblical knowledge, ouch, or maybe through position, position maybe as a working individual, or the opposite, position as a stay-at-home mom. I think um, I think we can all think of someone who we maybe didn't extend grace to um, at all or maybe had ulterior motives when extending <coughs> grace. This is not God's love. Proverbs 16, 24 says, Gracious words are like, like a honeycomb, sweetness to the soul and health to the body. Colossians 4, verse 6 says, Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each other. Jesus was continuously gracious in the New Testament. We see him constantly being challenged by these authorities. And Jesus was gracious in the things that he said back to them. He is our example of graciousness when dealing with difficult situations in our time. The next one we're going to look at is... Probably one we all struggle with. Well, I think we all struggle with all these, but slow to anger. This means extreme patience. Not reacting the way that our flesh desires to react, but to be extremely slow to react to sin around us. Maybe that means slow to speak and quick to hear. Peacemakers. God shows us how incredibly slow to anger he really is. There are countless times in the Bible where God did not react with the outcome that we deserve, but gave us second and third and fourth chances. When Adam and Eve took the fruit that was forbidden to them, God didn't finish the race then. Instead, he extended grace by giving them clothes and sending them out of the garden so so that they would not eat the second tree and not so familiar uh, tree of life, leaving them in sin forever. Protecting Cain after he killed Abel and lied to God. Even being patient over and over again with the nation Israel through their endless struggles with God. So much patience we see here. The contrast in our world that we probably see would be people that are quick to react, impatient, quick to speak over others, and bursts of anger. When we react in anger, it has a scale that runs from selfish anger to righteous anger. God designed our brains to trigger emotions for a reason. 
Learning to handle these emotions in a godly way is the key to having healthy responses to emotional triggers. Selfish anger is the contrast that we are talking about today. Selfish anger is wrapped up in pride and is giving into our selfish desires. It is, if it's left unattended, it can destroy relationships and twist God's purpose. We read about this all when we were doing our Ephesians study. Some examples of this would be how we react to our spouse or our parents or our in-laws or our kids. So I got a little example. Westy, the other day, this was just yesterday, actually, he was taking a bath. And while I was trying to dry him off, he all he wanted to do was take a moment and watch the whirlpool that was going down the drain. And I was so frustrated with him. And I literally was working on this exact passage. <laughs> and here he is, mom, just wait, look at the whirlpool. And I'm like, listen, I have an agenda. I have things I need to get done here. I don't have time to look at a whirlpool going down the drain of a tub. <sighs> Parenting is so sanctifying, isn't it? <laughs> uh, maybe it is how we react to our friends or our boss or our coworkers. It could be a burst of anger or physical reactions. There are other areas that we see that are not so obvious. Like when we are interrupting others to get our point across or just not actively listening. When we are driving or yelling at that car in front of us, come on, get going, the light, what color does it need to be? How we respond to teachers or coaches who are just not teaching our kids well. John Piper gives us a great summary of God being slow to anger in each and every one of our lives. He says, in Christ, your life tells a story of divine patience. I love this. God was patient with you as you wandered from him, scorning his son, treasuring sin, scarcely giving him or his gospel a thought. He is patient with you now as you daily find need for forgiveness. And he will be patient with you tomorrow and the next day until the day of Jesus Christ when he finally finishes the good work he's begun. We find this in Philippians 1, 6, 2. And why? Because some, because some several centuries after Moses, God once again revealed his slow to anger name, this time in the flesh and blood of Jesus. Love that. All right, our next is steadfast love. Steadfast love is unfailing love. It is active. It's a verb. It is his forgiving character. God is keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquities, transgressions, and sin. He is fully at 100% power all the time in his love for us. He never dulls or wavers in his intensity. God loves you with the same intense, overwhelming love that he has for his own son. Woo, ponder that glorious truth for a moment. The contrast to this is secular love comes from a self-seeking source. 
At the root of it, usually there is personal gain. For example, I give a gift because I want another person or others to know that I did something for them. Or I do, some, I do something to please another person for um, them or for others to know that I did a good deed, right? The Bible encourages us to give in secret. Does this mean that we should never show our heart through giving or doing? No. It comes down to our heart posture. What are your motives behind giving or doing? Is it self-seeking or is it sacrificing? What is the source of our love and compassion? The source of our compassion in Christian love is that God chose me. He consecrated me and he loves me because of Christ's death. Christian love is an overflow of joy in God. And that meets the needs of others. Even if it's inconvenient, uncomfortable, or costly. It is not self-seeking. It is self-giving, self-sacrificing. Our greatest example of this is Jesus laying down his life for us. This type of love is not based on the actions or the worth of the recipient, but rather it stems from the decision to love and to serve others as a response to the love that we receive through Christ. Lamentations 3, 22 through 23 says, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. This is the ultimate love letter Valentine one could get. The Lord keeps showing up, giving, forgiving again and again, despite all of our bad behavior. He grants us new mercies continually when we come to him with humble hearts to confess any sins that we struggle with. Charles Spurgeon says, God's mercy is so great that you may sooner drain the sea of its water or deprive the sun of its light or make space too narrow than diminish the great mercy of God. Amen to that. Faithfulness. Number five. Faithfulness is displayed by God sacrificing his one and only son, Jesus, for those who come to him. His faithfulness exists because he is God. He is perfectly dependable, trustworthy, and reliable. God's faithfulness is rooted in himself, and he cannot deny himself or his characteristics. Because he is faithful, the word is inspired by, or because he is faithful and the word is inspired by him, we can trust that his word is also faithful. So in the world, the world's faithfulness is really rooted in themselves. They don't have the example of God. They set their own bar, um, and if they feel like it's obtainable, they go for it. Otherwise, they become unfaithful to it. Another little story. So I had moved to Georgetown the summer before Ben and I were uh, to be married. And I was working, I was teaching in Brampton. And I was in the planning room with a few ladies working alongside me. And uh, one of them had asked me, will you take your husband's last name? And I thought, wow, that's really weird question why would why would they ask me if I would take 
his last name? I said, yeah, why? And their response was so shocking. They said, well, uh, won't it be easier for you in the long run with all the paperwork and such when the two of you split? Oh, <laughs> and obviously, at this moment, I was just shocked. I didn't know what to say. I just kind of was like, well, I'm taking his last name, right? Like, I didn't know what to say. I kind of just, it, it just kind of hit me the wrong way. I realized um, that they went into the relationships expecting to fail eventually, right? How many marriages believe this form of faithfulness in our world? It's so sad. They do not have that biblical example of what faithfulness should look like. How many of us have set a goal for ourselves, like signing up to the gym in January? Come on, let's see it, ladies. Yeah. Or set goals to achieve for the year to accomplish something for yourself. Some of you are faithful to your goals, but not perfectly. And some just give up completely. That would be me. Um, This is not the faithfulness of God. When we see faithfulness, we are looking through the lens of a constantly failing, never consistent picture of faithfulness. Even our faith, we're not able to constantly keep God's commands and we just never measure up. We are constantly unfaithful. This is why we need Christ. He intercedes on our behalf before the Father so that his righteousness becomes ours. The faithfulness of a Christian lies in the spiritual act of the soul coming to God through Christ, laying down one's sins in prayer and obediently putting our trust in God to be faithful unto death. If your goal this year is to give the best gift on Valentine's Day, wouldn't you want to give your loved ones the greatest and the longest gift of happiness? Think about that for a minute. Would you not want to give them the best, longest, fullest gift? I mean, what gift would that be? (laughs) All right, if you can try to think of something in this world that will produce those results, you have already failed. (laughs) The gift that gives the greatest and longest gift of happiness is eternal life in the glory of God. Ephesians 2, 8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the the gift of God. Romans 6, 23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This gift is a gift that is now and it is forever. It can't be washed away or thrown out in the garbage or forgotten. It is the best valentine that you could possibly give, ladies. Jesus says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. John 15, 12 through 13. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the truths that are found in your word. 
God, we thank you that you challenge our hearts to continue to know you more intimately, Lord. I pray that we will be able to dig into your word continuously, that we won't just let it sit on a shelf, the Bible, but that we will actually dig in and get to know you. Help us to look at your character so that we can be living examples of your love. Lord, be with us now. In your name I pray. Amen.